as we open God's word this morning, we take up the last three of the seven letters in Asia Minor. We're going to look at Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And these letters were given as a counsel by Jesus to churches with very challenging circumstances placed in cities with unique characteristics. It's an open letter, one to be read, understood, and put into practice, not only by those seven churches, but also by the entire church of Jesus Christ throughout time and throughout the world. So it's for you and I here today. So let us pray that we might receive it as such. Merciful God, your faithfulness to your covenant frees us to live together in the security of your power and love. Amid all the changing words of this generation, speak now your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises by living in obedience to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church, uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from that hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, 
The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we'll use the same structure to tackle each of the three letters before us this morning. And you can follow along in your handout. And we're just going to jump right into it. We need to take a look at these cities and know the characteristics of these cities if we're going to understand what the letter to the church is all about. So the ancient city of Sardis, it had many well-known characteristics. Uh, The name Sardis itself in the Greek is plural. And one reason is due to the many brown, orange, sardius stones that dominate the geologically mountainous structure upon which the city is set. Uh, It's also plural because it's really two distinct cities. You see, there's one part on top of the cliff, and then there's another part in the valley below, the lower city. So the lower city was developed for farming, grazing of animals, sheep, and all those good things, as well as regular trade and commerce with other cities far and wide throughout Asia Minor. It was well regarded for its wool from the sheep that it took care of, and it also had rich, colorful dyes that, with which they made beautiful clothing with that wool, colorful, vibrant. The lower city was also known for gold, You may not realize it, but this is the very place where the legendary and mythical King Midas came, King Midas of the golden touch. Whatever he touched turned to gold, including his food, including his family. And desiring to be rid of what he thought was a beautiful blessing that had become a curse, he was told to wash and wash away the golden touch in the river Pactolus which runs right through the middle of the city of Sardis. So at one time, the river was filled with flecks of gold, and it's known for its gold panning and gold industry. But really, the most striking characteristic of Sardis was its 
upper city. It was perched 1,500 feet on top of the cliffs looking down on the valley and the landscape below. Had a dominating view. And the cliffs were almost sheer straight up and down. It was impressive. It surely was a fortress. And that's what the citizens thought about it. The citizens were understandably confident that their city was unassailable and impenetrable so long as the guards on the walls would keep watch. They dwelt high above with confidence and security. Yet we can learn in history that there were reasons for this city and even this fortress to be on watchful guard. You see, in the mid-6th century, King Croesus decided to go out and fight against Cyrus the Great of, of the great Persian Empire. And suffering several unforeseen defeats in his own territory, King Croesus retreated back to the mountaintop, that fortress, and he figured, I can wait King Cyrus out for a long time. Whatever he lays against me, we can wait it out until reinforcements will come back and help us. But the historian Herodotus reports that one of the guards on the walls of Sardis during this siege lazily dropped his helmet, and it bounced and fell partway down the cliff. Not wanting to be without his helmet, getting trouble from his officer perhaps, he climbed down the cliff face very carefully to retrieve his helmet and climbed back up. And a Persian spy happened to see him do this. He unwittingly showed the Persians that the cliffs could be climbed and told them, showed them exactly how to do it. So that night, the Persians climbed the cliffs secretly in great numbers, found the fortress walls unwatched, and therefore took the city very quickly in a surprise move. 300 years later, Antiochus the Great of Syria took the city in the exact same manner. He sent soldiers sneakily climbing up the cliff face, found the walls unwatched and unguarded, and he seized the city and took it over with little effort, all by surprise. At the time of the letter that we have here, Sardis is now a Roman city, and it was generously rebuilt after the great earthquake of 17 A.D., and we've been reminded this past week of just how devastating earthquakes can be. Particularly in this part of the world, they happen often. This week, 28,000 men and women and children have already been declared dead. Thousands more without homes. It is a rough geological tectonic plate that they live on. That's the area that we're thinking about here. Well, despite all these glitches in the past and the history of Sardis, it still has a name right now for beautifully colored wool clothing, wealth and prosperity, and military security. So what about the circumstances of the church that dwells in Sardis? It's going to fit into this. Remember that in Scripture, a name is something that represents your reputation, your character, your integrity, your family, your work. Your very identity is wrapped up in your name. So by what name is the church known here. From all outward appearances, from the pagan community in Sardis, as well as the Christian community spread throughout Asia Minor, this church at Sardis has a really great name. 
They're really well known. They're thought well of. They have a reputation of being alive, the text tells us. They're that church in town that everybody likes. We like the people there. They're really nice. They're fun to have as neighbors, and they're really good businessmen and women. Other churches had the impression that they were really engaged in faithful living for Christ. Their worship was vibrant. Their ministry into the community was welcomed. But it's a facade. We learn right there in verse 1, this reputation they have of being alive is completely false. It's not really who they are at all. In reality, they're dead. Their works are incomplete. And they have no real life. Apparently, the church in Sardis was so connected to the city and the community of unbelievers that they were no longer seen as different. They weren't seen as people who were offensive to the pagan way of life that Sardis enjoyed very much. At this time, the churches were being heavily persecuted by the Greco-Roman culture around them. We keep seeing this time and again. A culture that is dominated by emperor worship, wealth and extravagance, military strength, cults of all the local deities. They all had temples in every city, and you were expected as a good citizen of the city to partake and join in. Activities that the followers of Jesus rejected and refuse to engage to the point of being obviously different than everybody around them. Christians stood out against the ungodly flow of culture and should today. And therefore, persecution naturally follows. We should expect it. But in Sardis, there doesn't seem to be any persecution. There's none mentioned They weren't being persecuted because they weren't living a godly life that was worth persecuting by the culture around them. They blended into their cultural surroundings and disappeared. Their works weren't so much incomplete as they were non-existent. They were religious on the human level, but in any manner that points people to Jesus, they had nothing. They were camouflaged to the culture. They blended right in. That's a dangerous place to be as a Christian. Known for your religiosity rather than your lifestyle of faith following Jesus. Well, you may be able to fool all the people around you, but you can't fool Jesus. Thankfully, you can't fool him. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And that phrase means he knows all people and all circumstances perfectly. His assessment of the situation is spot-on accurate. And it's his spirit, let me remind you, that he sends into dead bodies to bring life. And Jesus is speaking to bring life back to this church. So let's take heed to the counsel of Jesus that he gives to the church in Sardis and therefore to us to ensure faith is real, growing, life-giving, and active. And here he gives us five imperative commands, and he's using military imagery here to match the culture into which he's speaking. And so the first one is wake up. Wake up. And it can also be translated be watchful. 
which I like here because Sardis had a habit of not being watchful and it's cost them. And so, like those soldiers on the walls of ancient Sardis when it fell to the Persians, so the members of the church in Sardis have grown comfortable and comatose to the point and very real threat of losing their spiritual lives. And Jesus has to shake them awake with his message. And so he says, strengthen like reinforcements called to the walls at a time and point of attack. So Jesus calls his church to pool all of her resources together to invest in what's most important, a life of faith. You must call your brothers and sisters alongside you in Christ to stand with you. This is like a last stand moment. Bring the reinforcements. Strengthen where you stand. You can't do it alone. Remember, remember what you received. Well, what had they received? It's very clear the gift of faith that Jesus gave them in the first place so that they could believe. They said, help my unbelief, and he gave them belief. And what you heard, the gospel message delivered through the generations to these people, to us. This is something that continues to be handed down, and they have received it and taken it, but now they need to hear it again. That they might be reconciled to God. Jesus died in their place, the place of sinners, and gave him his perfect life, that is the gospel message that they once received but are not remembering and putting into practice. And so he says, keep it, this gospel message. And the word in the Greek here is tereo, which also means guard. Guard it, which fits our imagery as well. Guard this thing that you need to remember and hold on to that is life itself. Not guard as in to put it away and hide it, keep it secret, keep it safe, It's to put it out in life, to exercise it, to practice it so that everyone can see it, to keep it pure so that it's obvious to everyone around you. Careful obedience to the Word of God is paramount for the true believer. We have life by understanding it and constantly putting it into practice for all to see. And then he says, repent. Repent. Continue to turn from your ineffective worldly deeds and works, your idols of comfort, extravagance, and security. Put aside your false name that you built for yourself and turn to Jesus. Put that away and take his name and his character upon you. Take his name upon you fresh and anew with the spiritual works of faith that Jesus has laid out for you and enables you to show forth to the watching world. Find your spiritual comfort and security in living daily under his guidance. And then you will show forth his name and his fame. Jesus warns that if they will not wake up, judgment will fall swift and certain. If the evading Persian attack from long ago was so terrible, it can't compare to the consequences when he returns as a thief at the end of time to find you've been spiritually slumbering. So wake up. But the warning of Jesus here, 
the, the literary structure, it's given in such a way that it is anticipating a positive response to his warnings and his call and his commands. So to encourage them, he gives a shout out to several of those in Sardis whose name he does know and whose name is true. Says they've not soiled their garments, clearly alluding to the wool clothing industry of the city. And here we see the colored clothing that was famous for Sardis is used to represent the tainted, ungodly lifestyle of that pagan community. And so their clothes are soiled and polluted, which means their lives are wicked and they put off a spiritual stench of decay that can't be washed or or cleaned away by anything that humans can do. And so Jesus says and states that his faithful are going to be the ones who walk with him in white clothing. Now, there's nothing wrong with colored clothing. You look so beautiful out here. But the white clothing that he's talking about here is the righteous works, the pure and clean, acceptable works that he accomplished while living the perfect human life in faithfulness to his Father. Jesus says that he has made these people worthy and dressed them in white. So please note the intentional passive language that's used here. We must be clothed by him with the deeds that you and I can't perform in our own strength. And here the Old Testament allusion to walk with God in white That walk with God should call their attention and our attention to Genesis chapter 4, where Enoch, it says, walked with God and was no more. Enoch was taken directly to heaven and given eternal life as an example that God himself would break the cycle of death that had entered humanity in Genesis chapter 3 through the sin of Adam and Eve. And so Jesus ensures that the one who walks with him and conquers through a life of faith will not have his name blotted out of the book of life. God doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't use an eraser. If your name's in his book, he's going to keep it there. Your name may be crossed out of the public record of your culture. That's what the Romans did when they executed criminals like Jesus marked their name out of the public record. Your name may be slandered, made fun of, pushed out of spheres of influence, blocked on social media, but it will remain in high standing and bold letters in God's account because of what Jesus has done in you and through you. False names are praised by society, but a faithful name will be praised by Jesus and recognized by Jesus before his Father and the angels of heaven. Church, would you live so your reputation mirrors the image and name of Christ? Well, next we come to Philadelphia. All right, no matter what your hopes may be for the Super Bowl tonight, you got to set those aside. If you try to divine and discern anything about the Super Bowl from what we hear in Revelation about Philadelphia, you're going to lose a serious bet. So don't do that. The ancient city of Philadelphia, as one historical tradition holds, was founded in 140 B.C. 
by King Attalus II of Pergamum. His surname was Philadelphus, brotherly love. And he founded and named this city out of a love for his dead brother and former king, whose name was Eumenes. So Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It was strategically placed upon the key road linking Asian markets in the east, filled with Greek language and culture, with those in the European west, dominated by Roman thoughts and connections. And as such, it was considered a Greek missionary city, missionary of their culture, as a gateway to the east, and it was known as Little Athens, with a wide open door of all for all. If you wanted to go between those places, Philadelphia was your stopover. The city was also situated in an area with soil that had been enriched by volcanic ash. Being on fault lines creates this. And so the soil was excellent for growing all kinds of crops with great yields, particularly grapevines. Philadelphia flowed with wine. And the festivals and religious holidays were so greatly enjoyed that Dionysius became their patron god, the god of the grape harvest and, and wine. The Romans called him Bacchus. And so overindulgence was very commonplace in Philadelphia. The great earthquake of 17 AD devastated the city. Though the Romans paid for it to be rebuilt, many of the citizens decided they did not want to move back into the city for fear that another city built would collapse the next time a big tremor came along, which is often. And so out of fear and insecurity, they purposefully lived outside of the city walls, only coming into the city when they had necessities of home business to do. They stayed outside the walls. And that's important to remember when Jesus uses this imagery. And also, finally, city, the city of Philadelphia had its name changed several times. It's a newer city, but it goes through several name changes. First of all, when Emperor Tiberius rebuilt that city after the earthquake of 17 AD, they were so grateful they renamed it Neo-Caesarea, the city of the new Caesar. But then when Emperor Titus Flavius Vespasian was in power, well, they re renamed the city Flavia in his honor. And within a century, the city had undergone three name changes. And here it's back restored to Philadelphia. It's to this church that's meeting in Philadelphia that Jesus is directing this next message. So what is he going to find? What are the circumstances of the church in Philadelphia? Well, Jesus knows, and he says, I know your works. I know you have little power. The church in Philadelphia was small in number and small in influence. While the church in Sardis threatened to disappear in camouflage, looking just like the city around it, the church in Philadelphia doesn't even seem to get a glance. It's not big enough to be noticed from all outward appearances. They're too small to create a big stir in town. Yet they're still persecuted because they've kept my word and not denied my name. Keeping the word of Jesus, friends, means that the gospel of his word is held up clearly for all peoples to see. 
keeping it clean of lies and falsehoods, false statements, just like the big church in Ephesus has been doing that we read about in chapter 2. They're small in Philadelphia, but they faithfully hold out the word of God for all to see and hear. And you know what? Most of the people in Philadelphia don't like it. Jesus says they've also not denied his name. They're not afraid of being associated with Jesus in the marketplaces, who, much to the dismay of the pagans, claim to be the one and only God and Savior of sinners. And so they've put his word into practice in their lives, and it's obvious to everyone around them, and they don't like it. And they're going to come after them because that doesn't fit the mold. Both Jews and Gentiles wanted to silence this tiny little church with little power. The Gentiles cast them out of their city, but the Jews wanted to cast them out of the fellowship of God. But Jesus reminds them right here that he is the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. This is a direct reference from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. You see, Isaiah's nickname, his his favorite way of referring to God was the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus claims that title as the one who has been set apart to do the Father's will, living righteously for his people and dying in their place on the cross to take their punishment. And he knows who belongs to his Israel. He knows them by name. He died for them. He loves them. He'll never let them go. And he's the true one because Jesus is the true Messiah. The Jews said that Jesus was a fake Messiah. He was a liar. And they would shut him out. But they're only proving their lies by denying Jesus and persecuting his people. Jesus has the key of David which comes directly from Isaiah 22, 22, when he spoke about King Hezekiah's faithful steward, Eliakim, one who would faithfully rule in the king's name and bear all of the king's regalia, the sash, the scepter, even the key, the emblem of David on his shoulder as he ruled faithfully in the king's name. And here we see Jesus is taking that. He's no steward, though. Jesus is the true, real key of David. He is the one through which David's dynasty now has eternal significance. He's the fulfillment of all of that dynasty. He is the one who has the key. He holds all authority over heaven and earth and all of the inhabitants that are contained therein. His word and his actions are final, beyond contestation. So, What does this Jesus counsel his weak but faithful church in Philadelphia and to us? Like the message to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says, hold fast what you have. You have it. You've got it. Hold on to it. Continue your faithful living to the very end, even as you've held on to it until now. Keep going. Don't give up. You're succeeding. 
whether it feels like you're succeeding right now in your circumstances or not. Keep being faithful. His word and his spirit remind you and equip you to stay faithful no matter what circumstances you face. They will continue, this church, to face difficult circumstances. Jesus tells them that, perhaps even to the death. But he says certainly they will not face the judgment and second death that will face the whole earth, those who live only for this earth and not heavenly things, uh, they will perish when Jesus returns and they will be judged but not as faithful. They will be kept from the trial because they have kept their faith in Jesus through it all. So in the meantime, he reminds them and reminds us that he set before us an open door. You've got an open door laid for you. I want you to remember that. And this door is not so much the door of evangelism, an opportunity to share the gospel in all of your spheres of influence. It is that. But first and foremost, it's Jesus reminding them that he has opened the door of salvation wide so that all people can come in, Jews and Gentiles alike. It's not going to be cut out for anybody. And so they should remember to keep their arms wide open to anyone who would come. The gospel is for every tribe, language, and tongue, even for people that you and I may not think are worthy or deserving. It's for them too. You see, the Jews never allowed the Gentiles in, and they wanted to cut out the Christians from their fellowship. The Jews thought they alone had the key and inside track to God's blessing, and so they kept it for themselves. And like the Jews in Smyrna, Jesus states here that they are a synagogue of Satan because they're in effect doing Satan's business and bidding by hurting members of Jesus' family in town, Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. And Jesus assures these Christians, and he assures you and me, that though the people that deride them now, they will be brought to see and to experience that Jesus loves you. That he has spread his affection, his affection on you. And they will watch and marvel. He declares the door is open for all who believe in his name. And he welcomes them in personally. You'll never be cast away and forced to live in fear outside the city walls of his kingdom. Jesus will invite you inside where it's safe and secure. He will make you pillars in his temple. Pillars that no earthquake, natural or spiritual, will ever shake. You will be strong and steady. And it's not a synagogue, it's a temple. The Old Testament place where God dwelled with his people. The temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by this point. This is the temple of God in the new Jerusalem, which he made up and fills with his holy ones, his saints, Christians. He will be their dwelling place where you will dwell secure and never be forced to leave. You will bear his imperial name on you and on this city, and it will never change. It will be your new name forever based on the image in name of Jesus Christ that he has placed on you. Church, in your weakness, would you please continue to 
faithfully live for Jesus. Finally, we come to Laodicea. What characteristics of this city do we need to grasp if we're going to understand Jesus' message to the church in its midst and for ourselves? First of all, Laodicea sat at a major crossroads of Asia Minor. If Philadelphia was an open door, then maybe we could think of Laodicea as the Washington Dulles Airport. You get anywhere in the world. Laodicea was intimately connected to Colossae and Hierapolis, which was six miles away. They were known as the Tri-Cities, and they kind of did everything together. And the churches were connected there as well. Paul's letter to Colossae was to be read in Laodicea also. It was kind of a group letter, and there was group communications we don't have in existence anymore. It had a well-respected medical school, cutting-edge ear and eye care. An ointment was, uh, was developed in Laodicea to treat inflamed eyes, and it was sought out around the known world. Laodicea had a flourishing textile industry. Their sheep produced a superior quality black wool that was desired in far-reaching markets. And Laodicea was so financially well-off as a city that when a second earthquake hit in 60 AD and the emperor offered to pay for the rebuild, they refused the emperor's money and said, no thanks, we'll pay for it ourselves. And they did. And they rebuilt cities in all these other areas of their region. They were extremely well off and willing to help others. And then maybe the most obvious thing we need to address is the water supply to the city of Laodicea. It really didn't have a superior water supply of its own. Hierapolis was known for its medicinal and healing hot spas, natural hot spring water that could, could really ease burns and loose joints, things like that. Laodicea had hot water piped in from Hierapolis. They brought it in by aqueduct, six miles, all in the open air. Colossae was known for its pure, clear, cold, refreshing water. Laodicea used a pipe system to bring the water 11 miles in from Colossae. Because all of the pipes merged under the city of Laodicea, the cold water and the warm water inevitably mixed together. And it was neither cold nor hot when it came time to turn on the tap. It was lukewarm. Hardly desirable. And the result defeated the purpose of all their costly labor and ingenuity. That's the city in which this seventh church finds itself nestled. So what about the circumstances of this church in Laodicea? Jesus once again reveals part of his character to the church as a means of showing their true need. Jesus says, I am the amen. He's the beginning and end of all things, God's final stamp of approval. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Reality is seen through his eyes, not yours or the culture. What he sees, he speaks truly. And he loves you enough to tell you what he sees. 
Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. He is the arche, the Greek word here for ruler or origin. And so he is the arche of creation. And so the Bible is very clear, friends, that uh, Jesus is not the first created being. That's heresy. Jesus is fully divine, and your salvation depends upon that. And the Bible is crystal clear about that. Rather, Jesus is reminding his hearers now uh, that he is the one in Genesis 1, the one who spoke his word and everything came into existence. That the letter to the Colossians that the Laodiceans would have read says, he's the one through whom and for whom all things were created. Jesus spoke and it came into being for his good pleasure. And furthermore, as the first of all the resurrected from the dead, Jesus is now the prototype of what he will transform us to be in the new heavens and the new earth, like him. The point is this. Jesus can accurately diagnose our works and their works, and they've got no works. He has nothing good to say. It says, I will spit you out. The Greek text reads, uh, literally, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. He hasn't actually spit them out yet. There's still time if they will follow his counsel. And once again, it's put in phrases that ensure us they're going to respond positively. But there's no positive thing right now. Jesus can commend them. Rather, he uncovers their complacency with regard to faith in his name. They think they're spiritually rich because they have earthly wealth. They think they have spiritually prospered because they have influence in their community, frankly, in the entire region. And like the church in Sardis, they don't seem to have any trouble with the unbelieving community. They certainly must not be pressing the claims of Christ at the temple of Caesar that was set right in the middle of the city. They get along just fine with their unbelieving neighbors. They think they need nothing spiritually because they got it all materially. Crazily, they're the ones who presume to benefit other people, to support them, lead them, minister to them, but they've got nothing of eternal benefit to offer. The true believer is faithful in his work. The true believer is faithful in her service to the community, but daily looks to Jesus in dependence for food, for drink, for shelter, for clothing, for protection, for companionship, love, joy, commitment, sacrificial giving, spiritual nourishment, all of these things, you know it comes from his hand. And you give him thanks. And every day you wait for him to give it to you again. The Laodicean church is so comfortable with life at the present time that they're complacent in their faith. They fail to see that material comfort has made them lose sight of what truly faithful living is all about. What becomes crystal clear is they're attempting to live the Christian life without Christ in it. They've shut Jesus out of their fellowship in the church. They gather together, but Jesus isn't the center of their conversation or even a necessary talking point, it would appear. 
Church without Jesus is no church at all. Life without Jesus in it is no life at all. It's death and condemnation and misery. They're not fulfilling the purpose for which they were recreated in faith. How tragic. So what counsel does Jesus give to this complacent church that's on the brink of spiritual expulsion? He counsels them to see what he sees, to know what he knows. The shape they're in is bad. Jesus uses five adjectives right in a a row. Wretched. They believe what they believe is life is actually death, and they don't even know it. That's wretched condition. Pitiable. Helping others. They need someone to pull a rescue plan and pull them out of the miry pit they're in. Poor. They've got nothing of eternal worth to offer. Blind, they can't see their own position at all. And naked, their sin is shameful and obvious to anyone with Jesus' eyes. And Jesus here alludes to Isaiah 55 that we read earlier in the service. Jesus urges them, come, buy from me for free. And here it's not a command. He's cajoling them. He's entering in, coming alongside this blind and broken church who has exactly what they need and displays it for them so that they might choose wisely. I offer what you don't have. I offer exactly what you need. Won't you take it? Gold refined by fire so you'll be rich. Gold used here is the word for finely crafted gold jewelry that would adorn the body. Gold is used in Scripture to talk about faith. Faith is refined by fire, which means it will undergo trials and persecutions to prove its purity. Jesus wants to spiritually purify them in faith so that they will be pure vessels of his love to the Laodicean community. Jesus must do it himself, and he will ensure their faith endures. He offers white garments to clothe your nakedness and shame, as opposed to the black wool prized in the city. Jesus offers spiritual clothing that's fit for a priest here, white for the holiness and purity of their souls before God, pure and clean and holy because of the work that Jesus has done to cleanse them of their spiritual condition of sin and brokenness and death. You remember the vision in chapter 1 that John had of the ancient of days coming from Daniel chapter 7? He had clothing white as snow. This is the clothing Jesus says, I will clothe you in, my righteousness. He offers salve to anoint your eyes, that that you may see. Jesus offers to place true healing ointment on their spiritual eyes, the gift of his spirit and his word to take the scales off of theirs so they might see Jesus clearly and then walk with him in faith. 
It's as if he's asking, will you refuse the rebuilding of your soul by the emperor of heaven? Are you that complacent? Are you that arrogant? Jesus says, I love those whom I rebuke and discipline. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't do it. Jesus' mercy always reaches out to his wayward yet beloved people. He loves you so much that he will not allow you to remain in the embrace of anyone or anything else. He gave his life for you and he won't give up on you. Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door. This is not the door to an unbelieving heart, friends. Jesus is knocking on the door of a heart that once beat strongly for Jesus and has gone cold with complacency and inattention. He's knocking on the door of his church. They have shut him out of his own home. Jesus knocks that you might renew his loving relationship with you. He carries with him all that you need. When you invite Jesus into the fellowship of his own home, he invites you to sit with him, not only in his home, but on his throne as a co-conqueror, as one who is zealous in life for his glory to be revealed in you to a world that is lost and broken to which you once, you once belonged and were a part of. Church, combat and confront your complacency. So when he offers you a seat at his table in his home and on his eternal throne, be sure to sit down with the King of Heaven, your Savior, the Lord Jesus. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has the seven spirits, the holy and true one, the amen to all of the Father's promises, continue to pour your message into your church today. God, would you plant it in our hearts? And then enable us to put it into practice in our lives. That our name may be a true representative of your authority and grace. That our weakness would cause us to cling more faithfully onto you. And that any complacency would turn to zeal for your fellowship among us. And your rule to be acknowledged by all the peoples of the world. For the glory of your name. Amen.